With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles. The Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my Right Fit Method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career, and in your life. I carefully select my guests who serve as powerful users of my right-fit method. A key component of that method is passion, our career fuel, the impetus and foundation of career success. My guest today, Jack Fuhrer, is soaked in passion, but passion is not enough. Jack Fuhrer and my other guests know how to harness their passion. They excel in managing the process and walking down the right fit road to reach their goals. They know how to recognize right fits. They know how to recognize wrong fits. They know whether they can fix or not fix a wrong fit. They know when to walk away. They assume responsibility for their successes and failures. They say to themselves, it's all up to me. Throughout my own career as a medical school dean to heading a $60 million education program, at the National Institutes of Health, and as the founder and CEO of Barrow Global Search, Inc., I have observed that figuring out right fits is extremely difficult for many people to do. As a result, they continue taking the wrong fit road and wonder why they are in wrong fit marriages, wrong fit careers, or wrong fit homes. The solution is simple. Stop asking who is the best and what is the best. Stop comparing and contrasting. If all of your choices are wrong and you pick one which you designate as the best, you made a wrong choice. Picture a barrel of rotten apples. Grab the best one. What do you have? A rotten apple. To learn more about my Right Fit method, continue listening to today's show, and after the show, visit 
winwithoutcompeting.com to read excerpts from my book. On to my guest, Jack Fura, editorial director of UCLA Magazine, who likes shaking things up. At UCLA Magazine, he relaunched the university's flagship publication and its website. Prior to UCLA, Fura was the national news editor of Adweek, and before that, its first media editor, where he helped execute a sweeping redesign of this famous ad industry magazine and its website. Fura also served as West Coast Bureau Chief of Inside Media Magazine, where he wrote the acclaimed Westworld column on L.A. advertising, and as managing editor of J.D. Power & Associates, where he edited the award-winning Power Report newsletter. Jack continues to write about the business of communications as a regular contributor to Variety, TV Week, and other channels, and through MediaX, his popular weekly blog on MediaPost.com. His byline also has appeared in Advertising Age, Buzz, Content, and MediaBistro.com, among others. As an expert on advertising and media issues, Jack has been seen and heard on CNN, ABC, Univision, the Canadian Broadcasting System, Canal One in France, Fox News, and numerous radio stations across the U.S. And he has been quoted on communications topics in such publications as the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Boston Herald, the Wall Street Journal, and Wired, among many others. Fura participates what, and practices what he preaches as a marketing communications copywriter and strategic communications consultant for clients and agencies. His portfolio includes work for Lexus, Sony, Fox Broadcasting, and the City of Los Angeles, among many others. He is the author of Good Men, a practical handbook for divorced dads, and admits that he really ought to listen to his own advice about parenting. During the interview, I will uncover why Fura, a change agent, likes to do things his way. Welcome, Jack, to Win Without Competing. Thank you for having me. Where did you grow up, and what did you like to do as a child? I grew up in a suburb of New York, in New Jersey. And as a child, uh, I liked to adventure and read science fiction, and very soon... Uh, right. How did your parents set the stage for who you are today? Well, my father was um, French, came to America after the war, and raised us as a multicultural, multilingual family. We grew up French-American. So I spoke French from the time I was born. I studied there. Uh, I visited family. I went back and forth all the time. Are you, st- are you still fluent in French today? 
I, I could I wouldn't call myself fluent, but if you stay in a French speaking environment for two weeks, it it'd come back. Terrific. Tell us more about your parents and your family life. We want to experience what you experienced as a child. My father was an endlessly curious, very adventurous person, very uh, sophisticated uh, skier, uh, businessman. He had studied to be a doctor, kind of guy who excelled at everything he did and had a thirst for life that was uh, virtually unquenchable. He passed that on to me, and uh, especially a palpable sense of how wonderful the world could be and how exciting it is to explore and discover new things. My mom uh, was uh, more intellectual. Uh, she was an American, and uh, she instilled in me uh, our good foundation upon which to build uh, the organizational structure that I used for the rest of my life. A little bit later, I'd like you to explain when we get into the concept of the blueprint of the right fit, how what your mother taught you impacted that. Ah, uh, okay. Okay, so if you can hold on to that thought, I'd like to hear about when you decided to adopt the attitude, it's my way. Because I know prior to the show, you told me that you were very young when you made that decision, it's my way. Yeah, I was about six when I determined that I was going to be a writer because I had this gift that um, I didn't know where it came from, but it was there, and I, uh, it was easier for me to write than other people. What I wrote was better than what other people wrote, and it was clear that I had a, some sort of talent. And it also fulfilled me in ways that other things didn't, even sports, which was another passion. So I determined at that moment, at that young in age, that I was going to be a writer. What remained was to determine what kind of writer I was. And in order to, to do that, I had to explore the limits of my talent. Um, what kind of, a, of writing did I do well? Uh, how expansive was this gift? And what was the best way to put it to use? So in that was my focus from then on. At age six, yes. you had a blueprint. Yes. A blueprint how to walk down the right fit road. Yes. It's amazing. How did your mother help you in the creation of that mindset? Well, she was uh, the left-brain part of the family. My mother was um, 15 credits shy of a Ph.D. in botany when she got married. And uh, so she had an a, a organizational mind. She had the kind of mind that, that understood the importance of preparation and of research and practice. Uh, I, being a classic creative, think almost completely right-brained tendency to be spontaneous and capricious, but she gave me the grounding I needed to create a blueprint, to create a, a real working plan for what I was going to do with my life. It's interesting. When I was a child, my dad taught me about standards, and I was about the same age when we went food shopping, and he taught me how to select a cantaloupe or a banana. So I understand the significance 
of what your mother did because I personally experienced it. And I think it would be a wonderful thing if more parents today could figure out how to make that kind of memorable impression on their children. Yeah, uh, it was one of the things that I wrestled with when I was writing the book, actually. You know, well, how, how, do you, how do you parent responsibly and effectively, and how do you know you're doing it responsibly and effectively? Hard thing to answer. Well, I think that what will be interesting is to hear when we focus on the book a bit later what the research shows because I know that you did a study, and so I'll be eager to hear more about that. Okay. Tell us about a memorable event prior to college that helped you shape your career. I think the most memorable event, uh, believe it or not, was an act of civil disobedience. Uh, I grew up and went to high school during the 60s, and especially the late 60s when... Uh, when the society really started to roil with uh, the uh, anti-Vietnam movement and the counterculture and Woodstock and all that stuff. And when I was a senior, this would have been, oh, I guess spring of 1970, I was uh, one of the officers of the student council. I was the secretary of our student council. And the president and I, every morning, would uh, give uh, short announcements over the PA system, the clubs that were meeting, the games that were being held, awards that people had won. But this was April of 1970, and Kent State had just happened. Four people had been shot dead on the campus by the National Guard uh, protesting Vietnam. And the president and I determined that we needed to show our support for those kids and oh, wow. and we kind of figured we were going to get expelled, actually. But instead of giving the usual announcements that morning, we called uh, one period strike. And we asked all of the students to come out on the commons in front of the school for fourth period, where we would talk about what had happened and express our sympathy for the families of the people who had died and our support for their cause. And we did that. And we didn't get expelled. We got in trouble, but we didn't get expelled. And the entire student body, every single student, showed up on that lawn. And that taught me that if you have the courage of your convictions and you're ready to accept the consequences of your actions and you do what you sincerely believe is the right thing to do, that you will persevere. It seems to me that that also helped in terms of your career, I would think, because it showed you at an early age again as someone who spoke up, who took charge, and in my uh, way of looking at it, managed the process, and was not afraid to speak up because the courage of your convictions was more important to you. And I think to be an outstanding journalist 
those qualities are essential. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. I think that that, that experience um, taught me how to confront reality. And I, I don't mean that in a, you know, in, in, in a negative way. I, I, I mean it taught me to go after it. Now, journalism, the, the journalism I was taught anyway, when I was coming up, was very different from what it is today. Um, we, it was almost um, a religious uh, impulse for us to try as hard as we could to be balanced, objective, and fair. We knew we were human and we couldn't. But we didn't even join political parties uh, back then because reporters were supposed to be guardians of the public and the public trust. They were supposed to, in the famous phrase, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And you, you can't do that uh, with your eyes closed and your head in your hands. You do that by confronting reality. And even though we weren't expressing support for a political point of view or an ideology, when I became a journalist, we were confronting reality in order to report back to the people. So that experience taught me the probably the most valuable lesson I needed to learn at the beginning of my career, which is to go for it. And you certainly have gone for it. Let's hear more. Why did you go to NYU? Uh, delineate the blueprint because I know that you had a blueprint. In every step of the way, you've always been exquisitely clear about what is the right fit for you. And even in your personal life, which we will discuss a bit later, you also have come to an interesting conclusion. So tell us why NYU. Well, by the time it came time for me to choose where to go to school or where to apply, uh, I knew I was going to be a journalist. Uh, I knew that I wanted to be a reporter. Uh, it, it best suited my writing talent, which, uh, sh which shines when, uh, when the task at hand calls for um, brevity and uh, punchiness, impact. Uh, I'm very good with short bursts of writing. That's my skill. And that's what a journalist does. And uh, also my personality was um, fit very comfortably with a journalist's personality. A reporter is, in, in not again, not in a negative way, predatory. A reporter is a hunter. And they go out every day and they, and they hunt for food. They hunt it, they track it down, and they bring it home. And uh, so where else would I go to learn how to do that but one of the centers of journalism? So it was either going to be Chicago, Washington, D.C., or New York. I already lived right next to New York. I was there all the time. I'd been born there. And so while all my friends were going to what they considered exotic schools in mountains and things like that, I applied to NYU because I wanted to be a reporter and I wanted to be taught by working journalists, and NYU offered that opportunity. And I wanted to be the guy on the streets catching the cops sleeping in their cars reporting on riots, you know, calling up, calling up the newsroom and going, hello, sweetheart, get me rewrite. <laughs> New York was the only place for me. And also, too, um, didn't you immediately begin your career? Yeah. Tell us about that, how you 
joined the school paper right away and started reporting immediately. How did you present yourself to the school paper? Yeah. I just walked in and said, I'm here. (laughs) Give me a beat. I want to be a reporter. Um, I'm I'm an English and journalism major, and I need clips. And I knew uh, that the best way to distinguish myself from all the other young kids out there, because remember, at the time that I uh, was in college, uh, and in fact, almost to the month that I graduated uh, my un- in my in undergraduate school, all the president's men had come out, and Woodward and Bernstein were folk heroes, and every kid wanted to be a daily newspaper reporter. So I knew that if I was going to get my career off the ground, that I needed. Um, Experience. I needed to be out there reporting stories. I mean, it, it was fine to learn the theory, and I wanted to do that. Um, but, <laughs> uh, you know, I got into the game to play it, not to and you uh, did study right the playbook, away. you know. So that's yeah. what I did. The first day I walked in and I announced uh, I was there, give me a beat, and that's how I started reporting. And I did the same thing in graduate school. So. Now, you went to... Um, Syracuse, Syracuse University, right. after you finished your Bachelor of Arts degree in English and Journalism at NYU, right. why Syracuse next? Uh, because at the time, and still today, the four best journalism schools, in, you know, in effect graduate work in journalism, were Columbia, Missouri, Northwestern, and Syracuse. There was no way I was going to an Ivy League school. I'm just not an Ivy League guy. I had no interest in going to Missouri. I'm not a red state kind of guy, even though I didn't know what the term meant back then. Northwestern accepted me, but um, they had filled up their quota for that year, so I would have had to wait for a year. Syracuse took me immediately. And Syracuse also was, of the four, had the reputation for um, actually getting people out there and reporting. I mean, Syracuse's reputation was, we'll give you the theory, but we're also going to send you out in the street to go get stories, and that's exactly what happened. It's interesting that you were comfortable to leave to leave New York City. Um, what was going on in the streets of Syracuse? Nothing, but um, I needed more education. I wasn't. Um, remember, again, it was really a ferocious competition for whatever journalism jobs existed back then, especially in the daily newspapers, which was where. I wanted to make my career. Um, I wanted to write for the Daily News. That was my uh, my goal. And in order, again, in order to do that, to distinguish myself, to stand out from everybody else, I needed experience and I needed um, hands-on knowledge of what it took to be a daily newspaper reporter. So uh, when I graduated from NYU, I went to Syracuse because it could give me both those things. To what extent? Did you really focus on the competition? And to what extent did you focus in on going down the right fit road where you had your blueprints, where you kept raising the bar and getting the experience that you needed? Other than what I just said, it was all about the blueprint. I never directly competed against anybody. Good. Um, But the blueprint... Part of, part of creating a blueprint for me is understanding the marketplace, if you forgive a, an expression from my, my career beat. You know, you've got to know the market in order to succeed in the market. And I, right. I had to pick and choose what kind of 
education I had, what kind of experience I would acquire, and where I was going to try and get a job in order to make my blueprint work. So it was all about what was best for me and, and, and how to advance the plan. The competition was simply one element among many. I've never, ever competed directly against anybody. It's always been about what do I need and want and how do I get it. After you finished your master's degree, what did you do next? Uh, I came back to – well, originally uh, my girlfriend was um, also a, a Syracuse J School grad, and she wanted to be uh, in television. She was from New England, so we spent a few months looking for work in New England. But, again, there were no jobs for newspaper reporters uh, at an entry level, and there were no jobs for TV anchors at an entry level because everybody – wanted to be a journalist, just like everybody today wants to be a, a web entrepreneur. And um, so we came back down to New York very quickly, within about three months of graduating. And I immediately got a job at a weekly newspaper in New Jersey, uh, a big one, 50,000 circulation, where I covered uh, City Hall and Board of Education in Reunion, Fort Lee, New Jersey. So I was still writing again and again and again. And then after about six months, I got my first magazine job, at a magazine called Marketing Communications, which covered marketing communications and advertising, and I very quickly realized that's what I want my career beat to be. So then that set the stage for uh, the majority of the rest of your career. Mm -hmm. uh, let's fast forward to your position as associate editor of Ad Week West in Los Angeles. Why there, and how did you get that position? Well, I always wanted to live in Los Angeles, and so did the former Mrs. Foyer. So when we got married, we took what we told our families was a two-week honeymoon, one week in Acapulco and one week in Los Angeles. But that second week, we weren't honeymooning. We were looking for work. And I managed to secure a job as an account executive at a public relations agency because I've gone back and forth from journalism to marketing communications to journalism and this was the first time I did that in my career and so that's what got me out to Los Angeles but I very quickly demonstrated that I was the worst account executive that ever lived in public relations and so I got fired after about three months very cheerful firing and they gave me an enormous amount of freelance writing work after they fired me, and also helped me expand my network in L.A., because I'd only been there for a while. And uh, they gave me the name and number of the editor of Ad Week West, who was looking for some temporary help for a couple of weeks uh, with, with a reporter and editor. And so that's what I did. I called her up and went and joined her for a couple of weeks, and at the end of that period, she asked me to stay. What did you do, and what did you say to convince her you were the right fit? I didn't say anything. I just did good reporting. <laughs> so everything spoke for itself. It, for most of my life and almost my entire career, my writing speaks for itself. Um, the, you know, Once they saw the writing, people realized I could do this and I was good at it. Uh, once they saw the kinds of reporting I could do, how I handled myself on the phone, whether or not I was aggressive enough to get out of the newsroom and go see sources, spend time with them, learn their business, uh, learn what makes them tick, what, what, what gets them angry, what gets them happy. 
that kind of stuff, which, believe it or not, a lot of reporters didn't do then and certainly don't do now. Um, I think that's, that's what did it. But I, I didn't say anything. I didn't even know that the option of staying on was, was available to me. Well, obviously, she observed you. Mm-hmm. So you were talking. You just didn't say anything to her, but exactly. she observed you talking. Exactly. And she was able to, obviously, she read my story. Obviously. Yeah. After six years, you left Adweek to join J.D. Power and Associates as managing editor, where you edited the award-winning Power Report newsletter. Why there, and how did you get that position? Well, um, you know, I'd gone about as far as I could at Adweek, and I needed to expand uh, my experience level because a writer is only as good as his or her experiences. And a friend of mine at Adweek, the copy editor actually, had uh, a friend at J.D. Power, and, and through that friend she discovered that they were looking for an editor for the Power Report. And um, she said, suggested that I join. I was going through a divorce at the I applied, excuse me, I was going through a divorce at the time, and I lived fairly close to J.D. Power. So um, I called them up and got an interview and went out there and got the job. And it was wonderful because, I mean, I, it, I had covered cars. I had many, many beats at Adweek, and one of them was automotive, and I, and I was fascinated by cars, always liked them, been a Mustang fan my whole life. And, uh, so this was a chance to really uh, zero in on this incredible industry, which at the time, of course, no longer, but at the time, was easily the most important industry in America. And, uh, and write about cars for five and a half years and drive them. It was great. Now, when you had the initial interview, did you uh, just bring your clips? I'm trying to still sort of get at what you're saying, Jack. I think you're underestimating yourself. You're very good at selling. I'm trying to get the pitch so our listeners will get some ideas from your success. Well, you're, you're hearing the pitch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you're pitching. But, I mean, when you go, when you went and had the meeting at J.D. Power, what did you say? Well, um, I told them I knew how to write. I knew how to report. I knew how to edit. I even you know I mean even back then people were telling you to do this and although I hadn't been told it directly it was kind of obvious that you tailor your resume and you tailor your pitch to what they needed not what you have to give and so I tried to explain to them how my experience at Adweek had prepared me to do a good job on the newsletter because it required someone to be a self-starter it required someone who could edit themselves it required someone with a flair for writing and it required someone who was able to grasp relatively dense material and boil it down, distill it down to um, common everyday language that anybody could understand. And, of course, an awful lot of what we did at the Power Report was writing stories based on their famous customer satisfaction studies. So one of the things that was really important to them was to find someone who could look at a bunch of research numbers and, and make a story out of it. And that's, uh, and that's how I approached the job interview and 
and that's what I, I tried to communicate to them was, here's how I can help you. Here's how what I know is going to work for you. I also think it's interesting. I'm not sure you were aware, but you really delineated what they were looking for. And it's clear you matched up to their blueprint. It's not uncommon for employers to be vague about the blueprint of the right fit for which they are searching. So obviously you did a fabulous job. Did they have any concern that you didn't know anything or did you know or perhaps you knew something about the automotive industry? But I would expect not a lot. Uh, actually, um, that did concern me, but the full name of the newsletter was The Power Report on Automotive Marketing. And since I had covered automotive marketing for the previous five and a half, six and a half years, I was on pretty good ground there. And uh, I did heavy up in the clips that I showed. I did heavy up on uh, the reporting on car ad campaigns. Okay. So, so I did. I did. I did definitely focus in on that. Yeah. So again, you matched up to the blueprint that you presented. Right. Uh, fabulous. Going further, you left JD Power after five years to become the West Coast bureau chief of Inside Media Magazine, where you wrote the acclaimed Westworld column about LA advertising. Why there, and how did you get that position? Well, I got that position because um, the editor was an old colleague from Adweek, and I, at J.D. Power, was concerned that my, my ad guy network was uh, atrophying. My current guy network was growing, but the ad guy network was, was getting a little listless. And so I called him up and uh, suggested that uh, I write some features for him, and, and we did that. We started working together, and I wrote a bunch of features. And then uh, the time came for me to leave Power because I wanted to finish my book, and um, I couldn't just take off and write the book without some other source of income. So I called him back up, and I said, you know what? You don't have a West Coast presence. You need a West Coast editor. How about we do that? And he said, great idea. He said, I got plan A and plan B. Plan A is this salary with benefits. Plan B is a bigger salary with no benefits. Which one do you want? I said, I'll take plan A, and that was that. Another outstanding pitch. That I write a column too. So. Yeah, again you sold yourself, Jack. Then you yeah, it was kind of easy since he was already a friend, but okay. But still, in all, you did sell yourself. Then mm -hmm. you returned to Adweek, initially as the first media editor, and then you became the national news editor. Why was the time right to return to Adweek? Well, I had been doing public relations by then for a few years and marketing communications. Um, Inside Media was ironically bought by Adweek and shut down in 1997, so I, I had to scramble for work. And um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot, but, you know, I missed the red meat of hard news reporting, like I said. You know, it, you're, you're kind of like the, the lion out on the savanna when you're a, a journalist. You're out there, hard news anyway, you're out there looking for, for dinner. And I miss that. It's very exciting, and I miss that, the hunt. And uh, that the media part of advertising, the planning and buying specific, you know, TV or radio or the Internet or whatever, all that stuff, was starting to get really, really important at that time because the digital 
revolution had just begun, and everything was was changing, and and all the rules were were being turned on their head, and and all of a sudden, creative, the message, the ad itself, was no longer the king of the hill. Now, media, finding out, determining where you put the message and and how and in what proportion was really important. So it was a, it was, it was a fascinating. Um, evolution in the business that I had de- devoted my entire career to covering, so I had that interest. But also, at, and it was a chance to return to Ad Week, where you know I had and still have a, a proprietary emotional attachment. I, you know, I mean, sometimes I'm mad at it, kind of like a family member. But right, right, it's almost like a first wife here. Exactly, and and that what they were offering me was they said, look. We want you to, 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 be, to create the coverage area. We want you to be the very first media editor the magazine has ever had, and we want you to develop this uh, coverage area for us. We'll get you a reporter to work with you, and, and what do you think? And I said, what a great, a great opportunity to do something I've never done before, to start something. And uh, media editor was a step up from bureau chief and from managing editor of a newsletter. So it was a natural progression in my career anyway. So all of these things combined um, fortuitously, and I jumped at the chance. Tell us about the sweeping redesign of Adweek and its website with the Jack Fuhrer way of implementation whereby you had to retrain reporters and how all of that worked. Well, it was in 2003, and I didn't, I didn't create this plan. I didn't strategize. The editor and editor-in-chief did, but it was my job to, to execute it for them. And we had a staff of over 20 reporters around the country. Um, and back then, uh, this was when magazines first started really worrying in earnest about the Internet and really trying to crack the code, which, of course, they still haven't done, of how do you be a print information resource and an online information resource? How do you change the way in which you report? How do you change what a magazine uh, gives you as opposed to what the website gives you? And at the time, and still today, I think it was very clear that the way in which everything was going was that you not people weren't going to get their news from magazines anymore. They were going to get their news from the web. So the hard news, the breaking news, all the you know this just in stuff was migrating to the internet. That left interpretation and analysis for the magazines, which journalists call second elites. So or the who, the what, the where, the when, that was all going online. And the magazines would tell you how and why. That was a dramatic change in the job descriptions of our reporters, who were strictly hard news folks. I mean, they, they went out and they got the news, you know. Um, now we were asking them to tell the readers what that news meant and what it could mean. It's a very different job. And they also still had to get the hard news and contribute to the web. So. It was a big change. It was a change in their job description. It was a change in the amount in their workload because they were going to be asked to do a lot more. And a lot of them had to, you know, literally change functions almost entirely. The editor of the New England um, edition of Adweek became the magazine's web editor. Completely different job than the one he'd had. Just as one example. And so what we had to do was train them 
tell them this is the kind of story we want. The stuff you've been doing, this is where it's going to show up. This is how you're going to do it. They had to all learn content, a content management software system so that they could post stories online, send them to the editor. So a great deal of upheaval. And by now we're all familiar with this process. All of our jobs and our very lives have changed like this. Back then it was just the beginning of this wave. And uh, it was a huge, huge uh, project. Well, I think that understanding how to handle change is important for all of us, whether it's change in our professional life, change in our personal life. We're all, we all need to be able to change. And I think you were obviously the right fit because you're someone who's able to change. I don't think that you're over-wedded to your ideas where change is not doable for you. Am I correct? Yeah, I think I'm constitutionally suited to a digital society because the, whole, the, the, the key characteristic of, of a, techno, a technologically enabled culture is constant change. And I'm, I love change. <laughs> yeah, I, I love think, change as well. I'm with yeah, you. I, I, yeah, I don't think of it as, as, as a challenge. I think of it as an opportunity. I adore it. In fact, I've gotten in trouble when stuff has been too placid for too long, and, and I, I just shake things up just to shake things up. So I've always been, I've always sought out change. So this was uh, right up my alley. You left Adweek in 2005 and joined UCLA as the editorial director of UCLA Magazine. Why did you leave Adweek, and why was UCLA the right fit? Well, you know, it's funny. There, it, the, the pattern that, that, uh, that led me to accept the media editor job almost repeated itself here. I mean, by, by this time, I was the news editor of Adweek, and, and it was a very glamorous, very exciting, very high-pressure job. And I, and I loved it, but UCLA was doing something unprecedented. Most universities have either a university magazine or an alumni magazine. UCLA had both, and they both went to the same audience. So they decided that they were going to kill those two magazines, merge them, and create one entirely new publication that would be jointly published by University Communications and the Alumni Association. Also... Uh, as far as I can tell, unprecedented. I don't know of any other university magazine that does things exactly like this. And because the people that came up with this idea, the administrators and leaders, were very forward-looking and, and, uh, and, and people who, from a marketing perspective, were very adept, especially in an academic environment, they said, well, let's blow up the category. It's a very boring category. University magazines are all look-alike sound alike, taste alike, let's create a magazine that, like UCLA, is exciting and vibrant and, and, and consumer-centric and journalistic and reader-facing and, 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 you know, just like L.A., uh, a consumer magazine, a city magazine, if you will, about UCLA. In fact, our benchmark is New York Magazine. And they said, in order to do that, we need to go outside of academia and find an editor in the general market who has done this kind of thing, who has, you know, revitalized, refreshed, or relaunched a book, which I have done, of course. And so this was an opportunity for me 
to be the editor, which I had never been. I'd been the, the managing editor of J.D. Power and Associates newsletter, but I hadn't been the editor of a magazine. So again, it was a, a, I was a number two as the news editor So it was at Edwig. So it was a, a natural progression to, um, to try uh, and see what kind of an editor I could be. And it was also an extraordinary opportunity to create a new magazine, which you rarely get the opportunity to do in your career. And it was also an opportunity to stretch myself intellectually and spiritually because I was no longer going to be writing about people who sold soap. At UCLA, an extraordinary place, every day I'm writing, or my, my staff is writing, about people who literally do save lives, about people who literally do change the world. A lot of times we're talking to actual rocket scientists. So there were any number of reasons to make the move. I also want to thank you. When I wrote the article uh, about my right fit method and my book, Win Without Competing, you were my editor. <laughs> and I was just amazed when you suggested a title change to the article. Instead of calling it Win Without Competing, you suggested No Competition, which I thought was brilliant. It was succinct, and it immediately conveyed the message. Well, remember what I said at the beginning of the interview. My particular skill is with punchy, quick, short copy. I wrote right. all the headlines when I was associate editor of Ad Week for the entire magazine, the Western edition. And, and that's what I'm good at. I'm good at that stuff. And, and headlines especially I'm really, really good at. So... I can't give you any real um, best practices or lessons learned in this area. This is my gift, and it, I don't even know where it comes from. Although by now, uh, I imagine it's tempered and expanded with, you know, a couple of decades' worth of experience and news judgment. You write Media X, a popular weekly blog on MediaPost.com. Tell us about that. Well, I've, you know, like I said, when I got to Inside Media, one of the, when I became the West Coast Bureau Chief, one of the things that I demanded, really, was that he give me a column. Uh, at Adweek, there was a column called Art and Commerce that was reserved for the staff to, um, it was supposed to be an, an alternating column, for them to, uh, to take turns giving their opinion about something. And most of them didn't want to do it, because most reporters don't like doing that stuff. I adored it and wanted to do it every time they asked me, and... And, and more. And then when I um, uh, got to UCLA, uh, another old colleague who's the editor-in-chief of Media Post asked me to write for him, and I started doing a little bit of freelance there. And I did the same thing I did with Inside Media. I said, you know what? You need a Media X column. Again, because it suits me, it's short uh, and it's punchy. And it also gives me an opportunity to weigh in on why I like this uh, um, sector to begin with, why I began, I chose media, advertising, and marketing as a beat, because it was, it's the show business of business, so there's a glam factor, it's the lifeblood of capitalism, if business can't talk to its customers, there is no business, but what really, really got me going about this beat was that if you do communications, your job is basically to be a scout in the future, you're living a half a second, a half a minute in the future. What are people going to be wearing? What are they going to be thinking? What are they going to be saying? 
what are they going to be eating? Um, what kind of media are they going to be using? And what are they going to think about it? How do you persuade people? How do they develop brand preferences? All of this stuff. You're, it's kind of like you're riding the crest of the society's wave and looking down, and then you're coming back and telling people what, what's just around the corner. And a column is a perfect opportunity to do that. And if you read my columns, um, most of them are about ordinary things that happen to me every day, my cat, my kid something I saw on the freeway, something that happened to me in a grocery store. And then I tie it into media and marketing and advertising theory or history or trend or problem or some issue of the day because that's what makes the beat so fascinating. Everything we do every single day is influenced in some way, shape, or form by marketing communications. And so that's why Media X. Uh, it's the thing that I've done in my career that gives me the most satisfaction and it's also so uniquely me. Uh, when I was at Adweek, because it's completely, I pull it out of the ether. I barely plan the column at all. And when I was at Adweek, I said, the weeks that you want me to write the column, don't tell me until an hour before the column is due. And they would do that. And I would go out on the, on the terrace, and I would think, and I'd come in, and boom, I'd, I'd write the column. And I still do it the same way. Your personal life. You are a divorced dad with a son and the author of Good Men, a practical handbook for divorced dads. Why did you write the book? Well, when I got divorced, uh, my son Alex was two, and um, I wanted to stay in his life. I wanted to be a good dad. and I didn't think that all because I was divorced that all of a sudden that responsibility went away, and I didn't want it to. So I went looking for help. Because like most American guys, not only did I not know how to handle the emotions of divorce, but I didn't know how to raise a kid day to day. I didn't, you know, I didn't know how to child-proof a living room. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that I should put a rubber mat in a bathtub. I wanted to know about dating. How do I handle that? Do I live near him? Do I live near a school? How do I work with my ex-wife, you know, uh, to be a good co-parenting partner? I, I needed to know an enormous amount of stuff, and I went looking for it, and I just couldn't find it. There were plenty of options for me. Uh, there were books that could teach me how to take my ex-wife to court and, and fight a custody battle. There were men's groups where I could sit and bitch about my nasty ex-wife, uh, and, and there were plenty of self-help books, but they were all written for single mothers, so there was nothing for a guy like me, and, and from what I, my personal experience was that all the guys I knew who were divorced were like me. They, didn't, they wanted to be good dad. So I wrote the book almost in self-defense. I think it's interesting that you interviewed 150 dads as well as experts. Is that yeah, and, how, and an ex-wife, too. And an ex-wife. Is that how you reached your conclusions? And yeah, well, yeah, it was a combination of the primary research of, of those 150 interviews and then also... Secondary research, reading what all the experts had to say to sociologists and psychologists and um, the journalists and, and the educators and the attorneys. And when you put that all together, you came up with, you know, themes and, and, and currents that, that flowed through everybody's experience. Would you remarry? Never. Never. Okay. Tell us why not. Because I am not a relationship guy. Um, I have no shortage of experience 
being in relationships. I've been a husband, I've been a father, been a boyfriend, been a lover, been a one-night stand, you know, been a friend, been a friend who be, with benefits. I've had all the experiences that, that you can have with a woman, and, and they've been wonderful, but I, eventually I just came to realize that it, it just, I didn't like it. I didn't like being in relationships. I wasn't willing to make the compromises that you need to make to, to truly make uh, life with another person 24-7, 365 work. And I'm I just too much of a lone wolf. A lot of writers are like this, actually, so I'm not all that unusual for somebody who does what I do. But I just I didn't like being in a relationship. I'm not. I love living alone. I almost never get lonely. Every now and then I get a little lonesome, but I don't get lonely. I don't. I, I just don't feel that it's for me. And if I'd lived in the 19th century, I'd been, I'd have been what they call a confirmed bachelor. And so after you know all these fits and starts, and after my marriage ended, especially, I determined that it just wasn't right for me. Not that I'm not going to date, but I, I just, I don't want to be in a long-term committed relationship, and I don't want to get married again. And um, I'm really happy with that decision. It's been the best one I've ever made. Going further. You have an interesting take in terms of how you balance your personal and professional life. Tell us about that. Well, I don't. It's one organic whole. It's seamless. I am what I do, and I do what I am. Uh, I've always felt that that's really important. I I, I don't understand. uh, My father was like this. I think it's an old-world European thing where people think of their job as what they do, as what funds the rest of their life. Right. And to me, that was always, that made no sense, because you're wasting more than half your life. I think that the goal of everybody should be to marry who they are with what they do, so that the totality of their life, the holistic impact of their life, is that much greater. And, 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 and they, they can enjoy life, whether they're behind the desk, or sitting on their couch. Also, what I chose to do for a career is very exciting. There's a lot of adventure. There's a lot of travel. You meet a lot of different people. You have a lot of different experiences, which is what a lot of my friends do when they're not working anyway. So I have never never, um, placed boundaries around my personal and professional life. In fact, I've gone out of my way to integrate them both so that you almost can't tell the difference. What career advice do you have for our listeners? Know what you want. Go after it. Keep your, you know, get, have the goal in mind, but keep your eyes on the next step. Go step to step to step. First you build your plan, and you build it intelligently. That's how I published the book. I started with how do I write, what do I write about? Then, okay, then how do I get an agent? How do I get an editor? How do I publish the book? How do I work with my editor? What happens after it's published? How do I write the book? What kind of structure should the book... All of this stuff I researched before I did anything. And even after I got the subject of my book, I went. One, I, I, the goal was to pu- be a published author and get this book done. But I just left it out there, and what I focused on was the next step in the plan. I think that's really important. It's especially important for creative people who by and large aren't used to organizing that way. They don't, they don't do things in a linear way. 
But I think you need to do that. Now, of course, you have to start with knowing what you want. That's job one. Find out what you want, get a plan, go for it, one step at a time. Also, too, you're propelled by passion. And that really is our career fuel. Because without passion, I don't know how, how one can really be successful. I don't think any great thing has ever been accomplished by a dispassionate person. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, if you're a pro, you can be good. Okay, professionals, that's why they're professionals. They're good at what they do. They right. can deliver a professional performance. Right. But they can't be great unless they have something invested in the work, unless they care, unless there's emotion. There's something on the line. There's what advertisers call and agency people call skin in the game. You can't be great without passion. You can merely be good. And who wants Well, you can be competent. Well, yeah, but yeah. But you can't be great. And and why aim for anything without aiming for greatness? Doesn't make much sense, does it? I agree entirely. Jack, you are a win without competing man. You know your core identity, you are soaked in passion. You know how to package yourself to pitch. You understand right fits. You compete with yourself and raise the standards against which you measure yourself higher and higher. You manage the process to achieve your goals. You think outside the box. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you will come back soon. Thank you. It was great. Upcoming shows. Please join me again next Wednesday, September 16th at 5 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. I will interview Judy Lampu, producer, screenwriter, lyricist, and singer, who wrote songs for Motown, Jackson 5, and James Brown's label, Star Day King. On Wednesday, September, October 7th, at 5 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, tune in for my interview of Suzanne De Laurentiis, award-winning filmmaker and head of Suzanne De Laurentiis' productions. In preparation for the interview, I will be attending the opening night of De Laurentiis' Cinema City International Film Festival tomorrow, Thursday night, at the Hyatt Regency Century Plaza Hotel, 2025 Avenue of the Stars. Please join me for the premiere of Like Dandelion Dust, starring Mira Sorvino. I would love to hear from you. Please email me, drbarrow, that's D-R-B-A-R-R-O, at winwithoutcompeting.com or call 310-441-5305. To learn more about The Right Fit Method and my book, Win Without Competing, Career Success, The Right Fit Way, visit winwithoutcompeting.com. For information about career coaching, visit drbarrow.com, that's drbarrow.com, and for search services, 
sparrowglobal.com. Remember this trigger tip. Walk down the right fit road and you will win without competing. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Coach One, founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.